Johannesburg Airport has become a narco airport. In the last two years, uh, something like 22 arrested in Hong Kong for drugs. December 6 last year, two passengers who got a flight from Johannesburg, each of them had 12 kilos of cocaine. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Father John Wotherspoon is an Australian oblate of Mary Immaculate, who has been doing work in Hong Kong to combat the drug trade. He has raised awareness about the plight of drug mules, people tricked by promises of jobs or wealth into carrying drugs across borders and who are now languishing in prisons. I am Matthew Charlesworth, and this is Expanding Horizons. Father John, you grew up in Australia. Can you tell our listeners how you discovered your vocation? Yes, Matthew. I'm sorry to say this in a Jesuit studio, but I went to an Oblate school and joined the Oblates. And after you were ordained, you worked in parishes. In South Africa, we're very familiar with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, or OMIs, and we see them also working in parishes. How did you end up in Hong Kong as a prison chaplain? Well, in Australia, for 12 years, I worked in parishes and in schools, schools actually more than parishes. And our oblates in Hong Kong were suffering from a shortage of manpower and asked for help. So I was allowed to go and have a look, and then I went back, and I've been there for 35 years now, helping mainly in parishes, and uh, I spent seven years teaching English in China as well, Mm -hmm. and the last 10 years, more or less, full-time prison ministry and working with the poor drug addicts, street people, and so on. And were the drugs a common feature throughout that time, or was it something you came to later? Well, having been in Hong Kong for 16 years before I went to China, I knew where the poor people in Hong Kong were and the majority of street sleepers and drug addicts. So when I came back, I started hanging out with them, and I already had a prison pass, and the two sort of went together because the drug people and the street people were in and out of prison. And I got to know them, and they knew me already, so started working with them, and one thing led to another. What is the role of a prison chaplain? In Hong Kong, because of the British system, prison chaplain has complete free access to all the prisons for which his card gives him access. Mine gives me access to every prison in Hong Kong except the psychiatric centre. And I can go any time. And I used to spend five, six days a week in prison. I enjoy it very much, meeting the prisoners, encouraging them, and when they come out, trying to help them find accommodation and jobs. But in the last six years, uh, things changed because I was very sad to see a huge increase in the number of people from Africa. One stage in mid-2013, There were 30 men alone from Tanzania in the men's remand prison. They were coming one or two a week. Mm. And I said to them, this is crazy. Tell your friends, your politicians, your media, your church, to tell people stop coming, but nothing happened. So I got one prisoner, and he was later joined by others, to write a letter Mm -hmm. saying how he'd been tricked and warning others about the whole business. And his first letter was quite explosive. It was in Swahili, later translated into English, and it mentioned the names of eight or more big drug lords in Tanzania, including a politician. I put it on my blog, I linked it with blogs in Tanzania, and it just lit a fire. Media took it up and 
wow, where it went. And there was a new government at the time. And soon they had tightened security at the two international airports then, which were Dar es Salaam and Kilimanjaro. And in the following eight months, only one Tanzanian was arrested at Hong Kong airport for drug trafficking, whereas in the previous year there'd been about 30. Mm -hmm. So it was an amazing result, mainly because of the media. And ever since then, I've worked very closely with media as the way to get things done. And after that, in 2014, there was a slight increase again. So in my holiday time of January 2015, I went to Tanzania. I met with families of about 30 or 40 prisoners in Hong Kong. I did a lot of media work. I had some meeting with government officials. And again, the same result, down went the number. For example, in 2018, not one from Tanzania. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus said to care for prisoners, I have found the best way to help a prisoner is to help him or her not go to prison. <laughs> prevention better than cure. So I still visit prisoners, but this work of prevention in some ways is even better. In January 2016, I did a similar thing. I made a trip to Kenya and Uganda. And same thing, visiting families, publicity, and down went the numbers from those two countries. And then 17, I came here to South Africa. I was here in Johannesburg and also went to Durban, Pretoria, and Lesotho, the Oblate base there. And special assignment ran a program on my work. It was called The Last Run. It's quite powerful. And again, down went the numbers. 2017, I went to 10 countries in one month in South America. And I've been to Malaysia and Thailand. Malaysia in 2018, there were more than 20 young Malaysians arrested at Hong Kong airport for drug trafficking. But after I went there a couple of times, worked with the media and with the authorities, they were quite good, especially with the media looking over their back. The number went down to about two or three in 2019, and people were even arrested there. But I've come back to Africa. This is my fourth trip now. I've just been to Addis Ababa, to Nairobi, Dar es Salaam, and now Johannesburg because in the last year or so, there's been another increase. In the last two years, there's been 20 people arrested at Hong Kong airport who got their drugs in Addis Ababa from the drug gangs there. Some of them were tricked or forced to do it. Most of them, 17 of them, were from Tanzania and Kenya. So I spent a week there. I met with the top of the federal police and media, and I had a media journalist, one of the top guys in Ethiopia, Samuel Getachew. He was my bodyguard. Mm -hmm. And then I spent a few days in Nairobi and Dar, and my bodyguard was Sean Christie, who's based here in Johannesburg. He was CNN 2014 co-winner of the Africa Journalist of the Year. And he stayed with me in Nairobi and Dar and now here in Johannesburg and it was quite effective. We did a lot of publicity, we met families, but my main emphasis is Addis and Johannesburg because just like Addis, Johannesburg has become a, a hotspot for, for sending drug mules. Johannesburg Airport has become a narco airport, as Sean said in his press release. My figures are in the last two years, uh, something like 22 I know of arrested in Hong Kong for drugs coming from Johannesburg Airport. For example, December 6 last year, two passengers who got a flight from Johannesburg were arrested in Hong Kong Airport. Each of them had 12 kilos of cocaine. You probably know that a few months ago, two cabin crew of South Africa Airlines were arrested. I've met them both. 
a beautiful lady. She could have been Miss Universe like the other one. And a guy, they arrested one day after the other. The woman, the charge against her is 12 kilos of cocaine. The man is six kilos. Now, these are enormous quantities going through Johannesburg Airport. I've been meeting in the last few days with Patricia Herber, locked up abroad, locked up in a foreign country. And she gave the figures even more staggering than my own, that in the last couple of years, 100 South African men, not counting women, have been arrested in Mauritius for drug trafficking. Every one of them went through Oliver Tambo Airport. So the airport has all the facilities, unlike Addis, which has undermanned staff, very little equipment, doesn't even have a dog. At the moment, a dog is being trained in Germany for Addis Airport. But here, they've got everything, but it's not being used. And in drug gangs here, just as in Addis and also in Kuala Lumpur and Sao Paulo, they're exploiting the weakness in airport security. And there's obviously corruption there. And people are just going through the airport like, like water through a sieve. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because people say only 10% or so are caught, although in Hong Kong it'd be much higher. So if we're aware of 120 clear cases, and that's just to Mauritius and Hong Kong, the tip of the iceberg, they're going to other countries. A lady called Glory, who belongs to a special NGO, she had the figures yesterday, staggered me. She said that every week in Sao Paulo, Brazil, about half a dozen South Africans are arrested for drug trafficking. Half a dozen a week. So our figures are very minuscule compared with the big picture. And we're hoping that the publicity will be powerful to finally force the government or encourage the government here to take action at Oliver Tambo Airport, just as the Kenyan government and the Tanzanian government, wonderful, did a great job at Nairobi and Dar airports and did stop drugs from leaving from there. I know of only one case of drugs from uh, Nairobi in the last couple of years. I don't know of anybody from Dar in the last couple of years, so I'm hoping the South African government can finally do something about the airport in Johannesburg. It's one of the worst places in the world. What is needed for the airport to tighten security? Somebody at the very top of the government <laughs> has to say, enough is enough. That's what happened in Tanzania. The people down below can't do much. Their jobs are on the line. If they complain or mention something or do some whistleblowing, their jobs might be in jeopardy. There's always somebody higher seems to be involved. When I was here last time as part of this special assignment program, I met with a family where the husband was Nigerian, local wife. This is what they usually do. They marry local people to get residence. Sometimes it's just a legal marriage. They don't even live together. But this guy was saying that he used to be a drug lord but had got out of it. But when I took his photo back to Hong Kong and showed prisoners, they said, oh, he's still doing it. But during the interview, quite openly on the last run for special assignment, he openly said how they have people at the airport here and other countries in their pay, customs, immigration, porters, police, you name it, so that somebody with drugs can just sail through. So somebody at the top of government has to make a decision, this is not right, it's bad for the reputation of South Africa, 
and it's doing great harm in the community in many ways. Many of us might know one or two people who suffer from a drug addiction, but you've seen the drug problem from many different angles. I read somewhere that you even tried to confront a drug lord. Where do you get your courage, and what do you think is the solution to the drug trade? Um, Well, my courage comes from the good Lord, uh, the, the heavenly insurance company. I've been very providentially looked after. For example, on this trip, as in previous trips, I ask for help, and help comes from heaven. Like a couple of months before I was due to come, even before I'd bought my ticket, which I left till a bit late because of the troubles in Hong Kong, I received an email from Sean Christie. He'd seen some of my material on the internet. He said, could he do a story? And I said, look, I'll be there, so would you like to join me? Which he did. His NGO allowed him to join me in Nairobi, Dar, and now here. Uh, Same thing happened back in 2015. I didn't know anybody in Tanzania, not one person. And about a couple of weeks before I left Hong Kong, I got this email from a reporter, a lady reporter in Dar, she said she'd like to do something. I said, look, I'll be there in a couple of weeks. And she met up with me there and helped me meet families. And she did a huge story, five days, front page stuff. And that was what lit the fire. So the good Lord looks after me. And I have met some of the big fish and they have threatened me. In Sao Paulo, I was threatened. I've been threatened a couple of times in Hong Kong. But I'm not all that scared because I say to them, and I've even done a story based on James Joyce's image of hell and eternity, and I say, you guys, unless you repent and change, you are going to go to prison. You're sending people to prison, some people you're sending to death row. But someday, unless you change, you're going to be in a heavenly court, and there's going to be a lot of witnesses, and the judge is going to say, sorry, pal, but uh, downstairs, thank you. And it won't be for 10 years or 20 years or 35 years. It could be for 135 million years. And when you think about that, uh, it's pretty scary. So it's no big deal. I might just give me a get to heaven a bit sooner. But uh, these guys, they're facing eternity in hell. And they're the ones who should be scared. Many of our listeners will know that people can get drugs from a dealer. Could you explain what is behind the dealer? It's huge. There's various cartels in the world. There's the big South American cartel. There's cartels in Europe. There's the Nigerian cartel, the Mexican cartel. As far as I know... The drugs for, I'm speaking mainly these days about cocaine, although there's also heroin involved. But the cocaine comes from South America, and it comes that South Africa's borders are so porous. The airport, like I walked in the other night, nobody checked anything. You could come in here with anything. So they get it here very easily. And then not many people actually probably in South Africa buy cocaine. It's too expensive. But then they distribute it to other countries. It's quite sinister. And it's huge. Network is huge. There's different gangs who vie with each other and have competition, even set up each other's mules. But the distribution is so effective, so widespread, it's terrible. And the government really needs to take strong action against it. And how are the mules recruited? Well, a 35-year-old lady spent eight years in prison in Macau, about one hour from Hong Kong. And she said she was separated, had a child, also trying to support aging parents, struggling to make ends meet. And at a bar or somewhere, she came in contact with a guy who said he could offer her a job. 
And he chatted her up and eventually said, the job is in Malaysia, maybe as a cook or some sort of work in that line. So she trusted him. She didn't suspect anything. He went through all her documents and said, you've been approved. And she thought she was like winning a lottery or something. And the poor woman, she went to Malaysia where a guy called Ike locked her up in a room together with three women from Uganda. And I have a record. He also sent people from Malaysia to Hong Kong, people from China to Hong Kong. I've been chasing him for years. I helped one woman from China to win her case. She appealed and was freed by a jury in Hong Kong two years ago. She'd been befriended by him. He became her boyfriend, spent a few nights with her in a hotel in Guangzhou where she was working, offered her a business proposal and marriage as well, sent her to Malaysia a few times, but the last trip had drugs and she was picked up in Hong Kong on the way. Now, this same Ike was in Malaysia with his brother, in inverted commas, and the brother, this woman says, raped her three times, and then they more or less forced her to go to Argentina. And in Argentina, again, she was locked up with other people there, and they forced her to consume drugs into her body. Like other people in the same situation, she vomited, she was sick, she almost fainted, and they kept on forcing her, threatening her. She had no escape, she couldn't speak the language, they took her passport, and they forced her to swallow 1.6 kilos of cocaine. It's very dangerous, even men don't usually have that much. And then they put her on a plane, and they told her, you're going to China. She had no idea, she'd never been out of South Africa before, never been on a plane, and the poor woman was sent, they said they were sending her to China through Macau. She had no idea that China had the death penalty. I didn't even tell her where she was going in the beginning. So she got to Macau Airport with an idea to cross the land border into China. But at Macau Airport, she was acting suspiciously. Before she got there, she'd had to go to Malaysia again for one night. She'd had the drugs in her body for two or three days, not able to eat or drink much, very sick. And they spotted the signs at Macau Airport and arrested her. And she had no way of proving she was a victim, no evidence, no paper trail, no emails, WhatsApp messages, no CCTV. So she had to plead guilty, for which she got eight years, and she came out last year. A Mongolian man who was on the flight with her, or a subsequent flight that she knew about, he actually got through Macau Airport and got into China. He was arrested in China and executed by lethal injection. And she's very sad about having spent eight years in Macau prison, but grateful that she didn't get arrested in China. So that's one way they do it. They recruit people like that. These days they're using Facebook. When I was in Dar es Salaam there a week ago, I was on Clouds Radio Media. It's huge. It goes through the whole of Tanzania, about three million listeners. And one guy phoned up from a town I can't mention because it might identify him. And I spoke to him after the program, and he said a guy in his town had asked him to go to China and Australia, and had also sent two of his friends to Cameroon, and they did not come back through Facebook. And this is becoming very common now all over the world, Malaysia, Hong Kong itself, here in Africa. They're using social media to attract young people, and not so young, offering them big money, several months' salary or more. For people who are in dire straits, that's a huge temptation. And in some parts, like in Malaysia or Hong Kong, there's some video games, and you play that game, and then you get introduced to a chat room, and that leads on to contact with somebody. And 
And people are just being, there's 15, 16 year olds in prison in Hong Kong from Malaysia who were tricked that way to take drugs to Hong Kong from Malaysia, drugs in their shoes. Drugs can be in shoes, around the legs, around the body, in the body, through the mouth, other parts of the body. So all sorts of different ways, personal contact, social media, it's enormous. I could also say, if you like, that I estimate that of the people who are arrested, I put the figure at 70% know what they're doing, and there's a tiny minority who want to do it. They're greedy or selfish, they're after fast money. But the vast majority are just trying to get money for their families. There's, there's lots of mothers and fathers, mothers with three or four, even five children in prison in Hong Kong. I'd say another 20% know what they're doing, but they were forced, like the woman in the story just before. And there's another 10% who haven't got a clue what they're doing. They didn't know they were carrying drugs. It was put in hidden compartments in their luggage. They didn't know that a lot of elderly people are tricked. There's an 82-year-old guy from Malaysia who came here to Johannesburg, took drugs to Hong Kong. He didn't have a clue what he was doing. He was acquitted about a month ago by a jury in Hong Kong. So they're, they're doing this sort of thing. It seems that they prey on desperate people and they get away with all the money and the desperate people are the ones that do the jail time. Yes, they're very clever. They target vulnerable people. They target, like the woman in the story, separated, lonely, people struggling to pay bills. Can you tell us what it's like in the prisons in Hong Kong? Well, yes, that's a good point. I try to stress that the conditions in Hong Kong prisons are among the best in the world. They're like a hotel compared with Africa. Free food free clothing, free medical care, a small salary for working, a chance to study. Whereas here, families have got to pay big money to transport to get to prisons, buy food, pay for medical care, which is why most prisoners from Africa and other places choose to stay in Hong Kong rather than try to apply to return to their own countries because it's so much more practical. If they come back, it puts a big burden on their families. Although there's a tiny group, despite the difficulties of being back in their own countries, for the sake of their small children, they would like to come back because they often leave babies, one or two. And if they're going to be away for 10 or 12 years, they, they never see them. They'd like to come back for that, which is why I'm supporting Patricia Herber and others in asking the South African and other governments in Africa to work out prisoner transfer agreements. Other countries have got them, but African countries, very few. Mm. Not one African country has a prisoner transfer agreement with Hong Kong. Nigeria, Kenya were nibbling, but they haven't gone ahead with it. South Africa are way behind. And I hold up as an example the new prime minister of Ethiopia. I've fallen in love with Ethiopia. It's very poor, but they're moving. The new prime minister, Abiy, not long after he came into office, he went to UAE and he signed an agreement with the Sultan there for the return to Ethiopia of every one of something like 1,000 Ethiopian prisoners. And he took quite a number with him on his plane. And apparently wherever he goes in Africa, especially when he goes back to Addis Ababa, he's got prisoners on the plane. Now, that's the sort of leader who really cares about prisoners. And, you know, South Africa... I think of Nelson Mandela and the ANC, they were forged in prisons and they should be particularly concerned about people in prison locally and overseas. Mandela would turn in his grave if he realised that they don't care about prisoners. 
recently one of our retired constitutional court justices, Judge Edwin Cameron, has become a spokesman or a steward for prisons. What do you think we need to do in South Africa to improve the quality of life in our prisons? Well, just what is done in, in other countries, for example, tightened up security in the prisons, the custodial services or correctional services, they need to get their act together and stamp out corruption. It shouldn't be any drugs or guns or mobile phones. Uh, in Hong Kong, it's very strict. It's firm and kind, but strict. Very rarely do you hear of bashings and virtually never hear of drugs in the prison. There's tight security going in. People just can't get through with that sort of thing. So I would hope South Africa could move in that direction. Mm. There obviously has to be a punishment for um, cooperating with the transfer of drugs. But it seems that what you're saying, the wrong people are being punished, really. Exactly. They're just punishing the little fish. They're not going after the big fish. This is a problem in Hong Kong itself. I'm at odds with the Hong Kong government, and I'm supported by judges and barristers there. They keep asking customs, why don't you go after the big fish? One legislator there, he even started a WhatsApp group, including myself, and he called it Chasing Up the Ladder. But the problem seems to be, and I've said it publicly before, that some of the big fish in Hong Kong, they are in cahoots with customs and the police. They are informers. Now, informer is supposed to be somebody who helps the police arrest criminals, but these guys are actually doing business and recruiting drug mules, even innocent people, and, and then they often sacrifice them. In order to get protection from customs or the police, they have to sacrifice somebody every month or two. So they'll line somebody up, they'll give them a job, and then they'll tell the police or customs they're arriving or they're going from A to B, and for which they get protection, the police or customs get promotion, and the poor person gets prison. And this is a common tactic at airports too. They'll sacrifice somebody, and they'll let officials know that somebody's coming with drugs, and while the officials are busy with that person, other drug mules go around behind them. It's a common tactic. Mm. So very sad. You've commented on the lack of security at Oatambo Airport. What is it that Hong Kong Airport does that seems to result in capturing so many of these things? Good question. Hong Kong seems to arrest more people percentage-wise than most airports around the world. I think it's because the staff, they are so skilled and well-trained. They can detect, you know, sometimes a policeman can detect a criminal. You've got an instinct. And they can, they're trained like somebody's acting suspiciously or nervously or they can tell. And also now they get tip-offs from cabin crew and air crew. Somebody may not have been eating or drinking on a plane. They've got the best scanning equipment in the world. They've got the best dogs, woof, woof. And lately I've heard they've got a new computer program which can tell them the complete travel history of every passenger. So anybody arriving in Hong Kong, they can check where they've ever been on an aeroplane. And if there's a suspicious pattern, for example, Johannesburg, Sao Paulo, Hong Kong, or something like that, the computer will flag a warning. And when the passenger arrives, the customs officer will say, excuse me, sir, could I see you in the room there for a minute, please? <laughs> and most places say only about 10% of drug mules are caught. But I think in Hong Kong, it has to be 50, 60, maybe 70. Going to Hong Kong is a suicide mission, with drugs, that is. <laughs> How do you think this ministry of yours is helping to expand the horizons of hope? Well... And many fronts, for example, every time I meet families, including the last couple of days, people say, this has given hope. In Nairobi, 
I had a meeting with something like 46 people, relatives of prisoners in Hong Kong, and I was fortunate to have five one day and four the other of Kenyan women who had been in Hong Kong in prison, eight, nine, ten years, and had returned to their own country. And they came along to testify, and it was fantastic. They shared about the conditions there and how this is only temporary. It's terrible being away for a while, but it's going to stop. And here they are. They're all dolled up, beautiful, almost don't recognize them. And they said to the families, your beloved ones will be back like this someday. And people said, I got a lot of WhatsApp messages. Oh, thank you. That gave me hope. And it's beautiful like that, giving people hope. Thank you, Father John. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Matthew Charlesworth. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.